0: 20th century was quite an important period for the Indian subcontinent. In the first half of it, it was being ruled by the British and it was a colony of the British in fact and in the second half, you saw new independent nations emerging and probably the most significant part of it was the creation of Pakistan or The partition of India and Pakistan in 1947 and a lot has been said and written about it. In these two countries in India and in Pakistan you read two different versions of it. Therefore it's quite important to read one of the most profound and brilliant minds of that period which was Dr. B. R. Ambedkar, whose writings, if you see, are very sharp and critical on every subject. So, it's a really good idea to see his writings on this topic. What did he make up of the partition of India and the creation of Pakistan? How did he see it? What were his arguments? Which is why I am directly going to jump to this topic and read from the collection of Ambedkar's writings and hopefully you will enjoy what his opinions were on this. So here we go. The Hindu resentment is quite natural. Whether India is a nation or not, has been the subject matter of controversy between the Anglo-Indians and the Hindu politicians ever since the Indian National Congress was founded. The Anglo-Indians were never tired of proclaiming that India was not a nation, that Indians was only another name for the people of India. In the words of one Anglo-Indian, to know India was to forget that there is such a thing as India. The Hindu politicians and patriots have been, on the other hand, equally persistent in their assertion that India is a nation. That the Anglo-Indians were right in their repudiation cannot be gainsaid. Even Dr. Tagore, the national poet of Bengal, agrees with them. But the Hindus have never yielded on the point even to Dr. Tagore. This was because of two reasons, firstly the Hindu felt ashamed to admit that India was not a nation. In a world where nationality and nationalism were deemed to be special virtues in a people, it was quite natural for the Hindus to feel, to use the language of Mr. HG Wells, that it would be as improper for India to be without a nationality as it would be for a man to be without his clothes in a crowded assembly. Secondly, he had realized that nationality had a most intimate connection with the claim for self-government. He knew that by the end of the 19th century, it had become an acceptable, accepted principle that the people who constituted a nation were entitled on that account to self-government and that any patriot who asked for self-government for his people had to prove that they were a nation. The Hindu for these reasons never stopped to examine whether India was or was not a nation in fact. He never cared to reason whether nationality was merely a question of calling a people a nation or was a question of the people being a nation. He knew one thing, namely that if he was to succeed in his demand for self-government for India, he must maintain that if he could not prove it, even then that India was the nation. In this assertion, he was never contradicted by any Indian. The thesis was so agreeable that even serious Indian students of history came forward to write propagandist literature in support of it, no doubt out of patriotic motives. The Hindu social reformers, who knew that this was a dangerous delusion, could not openly contradict this thesis for anyone who questioned it, was at once called a tool of the British bureaucracy and enemy of the country. The Hindu politician was able to propagate his view for a long time. His opponent, the Anglo-Indian, had ceased to reply to him. His propaganda had almost succeeded. When it was about to succeed, comes this declaration of the Muslim League, this rift in the lute. Just because it does not come from the Anglo-Indian, it is a deadlier blow. It destroys the work which the Hindu politician has done for years. If the Muslims in India are a separate nation, then of course India is not a nation. This assertion cuts the whole ground from under the feet of Hindu politicians. It is natural that they should feel annoyed at it and call it a stab in the back. But stab or no stab, the point is, can the Muslims be called to constitute a nation? Everything else is beside the point. This raises the question, what is a nation? Toms have been written on the subject. Those who are curious may go through them and study the different basic conceptions as well as the different aspects of it. It is, however, enough to know the core of the subject and that can be set down in a few words. Nationality is a social feeling. It is a feeling of a corporate sentiment of oneness which makes those who are charged with it feel that they are kith and kin. This national feeling is a double-edged feeling. Is it at at once a feeling of fellowship for one's one's own kith and kin? and an anti-fellowship feeling for those who are not one's own, kith, and kin. It is a feeling of consciousness of kind, which on the one hand binds together those who have it so strongly that it overrides all differences arising out of economic conflicts or social gradations, and on the other, severes them from those who are not of their kind. It is a longing not to belong to any other group, This is the essence of what is called a nationality and national feeling. Now apply this test to the Muslim claim. Is it or is it not a fact that the Muslims of India are an exclusive group? Is it not or is it a fact that they have a consciousness of kind? Is it or is it not that every Muslim is possessed by a longing to belong to his own group and not to any non-Muslim group. If the answer to these questions is in the affirmative, then the controversy must end and the Muslim claim that they are a nation must be accepted without cavil. What the Hindus must show is that notwithstanding some differences, there are enough affinities between Hindus and Muslims to constitute them into one nation, or to use plain language which make Muslims and Hindus long to belong together. Hindus who disagree with the Muslim view that the Muslims are a separate nation by themselves rely upon certain features of Indian social life which seem to form the bonds of integration between Muslim society and Hindu society. In the first place, it is said that there is no difference of race between the Hindus and the Muslims that the Punjabi Muslim and the Punjabi Hindu. The Uttar Pradesh Muslim and the Uttar Pradesh Hindu. The Bihar Muslim and the Bihar Hindu. The Bengal Muslim and the Bengal Hindu. The Madras Muslim and the Madras Hindu. And the Bombay Muslim and the Bombay Hindu are racially of one stock. Indeed, there is more racial affinity between the Madras Muslim and the Madras Brahmin than there is between the Madras Brahmin and the Punjab Brahmin. In the second place, reliance is placed upon linguistic unity between Hindus and Muslims. It is said that the Muslims have no common language of their own which can mark them off as a linguistic group separate from the Hindus. On the contrary, there is a complete linguistic unity between the two. In the Punjab, both Hindus and Muslims speak Punjabi. In Sindh, both speak Sindhi. In Bengal, both speak Bengali. In Gujarat both speak Gujarati, in Maharashtra both speak Marathi. And so is it in every province. It is only in towns that the Muslims speak Urdu and the Hindus, the language of the province. But outside in the rural parts, there is complete linguistic unity between Hindus and Muslims. Thirdly, it is pointed out that India is the land which the Hindus and Muslims have now inhabited together for centuries. It is not exclusively the land of the Hindus nor is it exclusively the land of the Muslims. Reliance is placed not only upon racial unity but also upon pertain common features in the social and cultural life of the two communities. It is pointed out that the social life of many Muslim groups is honeycombed with Hindu customs. For instance, the Awans of Punjab, though they are nearly all Muslims, retain Hindu names and keep their genealogies in the Brahmanic fashion. Hindu surnames are found among Muslims. For instance, the surname Chaudhary is a Hindu surname but is common among the Muslims of UP and Northern India. In the matter of marriage, certain groups of Muslims are Muslims in name only. They either follow the Hindu form of the ceremony alone, or perform the ceremony first by the Hindu rites and then call the Qazi and have it performed in the Muslim form. In some sections of Muslims, the law applied is the Hindu law in the matter of marriage, guardianship, and inheritance. Before the Shariat Act was passed, This was true even in the Punjab and the northwestern frontier provinces. In the social sphere, the caste system is alleged to be as much as a part of Muslim society as it is of Hindu society. In the religious sphere, it is pointed out that many Muslim peers had Hindu disciples and similarly some Hindu yogis have had Muslim chelas. Reliance is placed on instances of friendship between saints of the rival creeds. At Giroth in the Punjab, the tombs of two ascetics, Jamali Sultan and Dial Bhavan, who lived in close amity during the early part of the 19th century, stand close to one another and are revered by Hindus and Muslims alike. Bava Fatu, a Muslim saint who lived about 1700 AD, and whose tomb is at Ranital in the Kangra district received the title of the prophet by the blessing of Hindu saint Sodhiguru Guru Gulab Singh. On the other hand, Baba Shahana, a Hindu saint whose cult is observed in the Jang district, is said to have been the chela of a Muslim peer who changed the original name of his Hindu follower into Meersha. All this no doubt is true that a large majority of the Muslims belong to the same race as the Hindus is beyond question. That all Muslims do not speak a common tongue, that many speak the same language as the Hindus cannot be denied. That there are certain social customs which are common to both cannot be gainsaid. That certain religious rites and practices are common to both is also a matter of fact. But the question is Can all this support the conclusion that the Hindus and the Muslims on account of them constitute one nation or these things have fostered in them a feeling that they long to belong to each other? What justification have the Muslims of India for demanding the partition of India and the establishment of separate Muslim states? Why this insurrection? What grievances have they? asked the Hindus in a spirit of righteous indignation. Anyone who knows history will not fail to realize that it has now been a well-established principle that nationalism is a sufficient justification for the creation of a national state, as the great historian Lord Acton points out. In the old European system, the rights of nationalities were neither recognized by governments nor asserted by the people. The interest of the reigning families, not those of the nations, regulated the frontiers, and the administration was conducted generally without any reference to popular desires. Where all liberties were suppressed, the claims of national independence were necessarily ignored and a princess, in the words of Fenelon, carried a monarchy in her wedding portion. Nationalities were at first listless. When they became conscious, he says that it is in general a necessary condition of free institutions that the boundaries of government should coincide in the main with those of the nationalities. Thus, History shows that the theory of nationality is embedded in the democratic theory of the sovereignty of the will of a people. This means that the demand by a nationality for a national state does not require to be supported by any list of grievances. The will of the people is enough to justify it. But if grievances must be cited in support of their claim, the Muslims say that they have them in plenty. They may be summed up in one sentence that constitutional safeguards have failed to save them from the tyranny of the Hindu majority. At the Round Table Conference, the Muslims presented their list of safeguards, which were formulated in the well known 14 points. The Hindu representatives at the Round Table Conference would not consent to them. There was an impasse. The British government intervened and gave what is known as the communal decision. By that decision, the Muslims got all their 14 points. There was much bitterness amongst the Hindus against the communal award, but the Congress did not take part in the hostility that was displayed by the Hindus generally towards it, although it did retain the right to describe it as anti-national and to get it changed with the consent of the Muslims. So careful was the Congress not to wound the feelings of the Muslims that when the resolution was moved in the Central Assembly condemning the communal award, the Congress, though it did not bless it, remained neutral, neither opposing nor supporting it. The Muslims were well justified in looking upon this Congress attitude as a friendly gesture. The victory of the Congress at the polls in the provinces where the Hindus are in a majority, did not disturb the tranquility of the Muslims. They felt they had nothing to fear from the Congress and the prospects were that the Congress and the Muslim League would work the constitution in partnership. But two years and three months of the Congress government in the Hindu provinces have completely disillusioned them and have made them the bitterest enemies of the Congress the deliverance day celebration held on 22nd december 1939 shows the depth of their resentment what is worse their bitterness is not confined to the congress the muslims at the round table conference joined in the demand for suraj are today the most ruthless opponents of suraj what has the congress done to annoy the muslims so much The Muslim League has asserted that under the Congress regime, the Muslims were actually tyrannized and oppressed. Two committees appointed by the League are said to have investigated and reported on the matter. But but apart from these matters which require to be examined by an impartial tribunal, there are undoubtedly two things which have produced the clash. First the refusal by the Congress to recognize the Muslim League as the only representative body of the Muslims. Second, the refusal by the Congress to form coalition ministries in the Congress provinces. On the first question, both the Congress and the League are adamant. The Congress is prepared to accept the Muslim League as one of the many Muslim political organizations such as the Aras, the National Muslims and Jamatul Ulema but it will not accept the Muslim League as the only representative body of the Muslims. The Muslim League, on the other hand, is not prepared to enter into any talk unless the Congress accepts it as the only representative body of the Muslims of India. The Hindus stigmatize the claim of the League as an extravagant one and try to ridicule it. The Muslims may say that if the Hindus would only stop to inquire how treaties between nations are made, they would realize the stupidity of their view. It may be argued that when a nation proceeds to make a treaty with another nation, it recognizes the government of the latter as fully representing it. In no country does the government of the day represent the whole body of the people. Everywhere it represents only a majority. But nations do not refuse to settle their disputes because the governments which represent them do not represent the whole people. It is enough if each government represents a majority of its citizens. This analogy the Muslims may contend must apply to the Congress League quarrel on this issue. The League may not represent the whole body of the Muslims but if it represents a majority of them the Congress should have no compunction to deal with it for the purpose of effecting a settlement of the Hindu-Muslim question. Of course, it is open to the government of a country not to recognize the government of another country where there is more than one body claiming to the government. Similarly, the Congress may not recognize the League. It must, however, recognize either the national Muslims or the Aras or the Jamatul Lema and fix the terms of settlement between the two communities. Of course, it must act with the full knowledge as to which is more likely to be repudiated by the Muslims, an agreement with the League or an, ag- an agreement with the other Muslim parties. The Congress must deal with one or the other. To deal with neither is not only stupid but mischievous. This attitude of the Congress only serves to annoy the Muslims and to exasperate them. The Muslims rightly interpret this attitude of the Congress as an attempt to create divisions among them with a view to cause confusion in their ranks and weaken their front. On the second issue, the Muslim demand has been that in the cabinets there shall be included Muslim ministers who have the confidence of the Muslim members in the legislature. They expected that this demand of theirs would be met by the Congress if it came in power. But they were sorely disappointed. With regard to this demand, the Congress took a legalistic attitude. The Congress agreed to include Muslim in their cabinets provided they resigned from their parties joined the Congress and signed the Congress pledge. This was resented by the Muslims on three grounds. In the first place, they regarded it as a breach of faith. The Muslims say that this demand of theirs is in accordance with the spirit of the constitution. At the round table conference, it was agreed that the cabinets shall include representatives of the minority communities, The minorities insisted that a provision to that effect should be made a part of the statute. The Hindus, on the other hand, desired that the matter should be left to be regulated by convention. A via media was found. It was agreed that the provision should find a place in the instrument of instructions to the governors of the provinces and an obligation should be imposed upon them to see that effect was given to the convention in the formation of the cabinets. The Muslims did not insist upon making this provision a part of the statute because they depended upon the good faith of the Hindus. This agreement was broken by a party which had given the Muslims to understand that towards them its attitude would be not only correct but considerate. In the second place, the Muslims felt that the Congress view was a perversion of the real scope of the Convention. They rely upon the text of the clause in the instrument of instructions and argue that the words of members of minority in it can have only one meaning namely a person having the confidence of the community. The position taken by the Congress is in direct contradiction with the meaning of this clause and is indeed a covert attempt to break all other parties in the country and to make the Congress the only political party in the country. The demand for signing the Congress pledge can have no other intention. This attempt to establish a totalitarian state may be welcome to the Hindus but it meant the political death of the Muslims as a free people. This resentment of the Muslims was considerably aggravated when they found the governors on whom the obligation was imposed to see that effect was given to the convention, declining to act. Some governors declined because they were helpless by reason of the fact that the Congress was the only majority party which could produce a stable government, that a Congress government was the only government possible, and that there was no alternative to it except suspending the constitution. Other governors declined because they became active supporters of the Congress government and showed their partisanship by praising the Congress or by wearing Khadi clothes, which is the official party dress of the Congress. Whatever be the reasons, the Muslims discovered that an important safeguard had failed to save them. The Congress' reply to these accusations by the Muslims is twofold. In the first place, they say that coalition cabinets are inconsistent with collective responsibility of the cabinets. This, the Muslims refused to accept as an honest plea. The English people were the first and the only people who made it a principle of their system of government. But even there, it has been abundant since. The English Parliament debated the issue and came to the conclusion that it was not so sacrosanct as it was once held and that a departure from it did not necessarily affect the efficiency or smooth working of the governmental machine. Secondly, as a matter of fact, there was no collective responsibility in the Congress government. It was a government by departments, each minister was independent of the other and the prime minister was just a minister. For the congress to talk about collective responsibility was really impertinent. The plea was even dishonest because it is a fact that in the provinces where the congress was in a minority, they did form coalition ministries without asking the ministers from other parties to sign the congress pledge. The Muslims are entitled to ask if coalition is bad, how can it be good in one place and bad in another? The second reply of the Congress is that even if they take Muslim ministers in their cabinet who have not the confidence of the majority of the Muslims, they have not failed to protect their interests. Indeed, they have done everything to advance the interests of the Muslims. This no doubt rests on the view Pope held of government when he said, For forms of government let fools contest, what is best administered is best. In making this reply, the Congress High Command seems to have misunderstood what the main contention of the Muslims and the minorities has been. Their quarrel is not on the issue whether the Congress has or has not done any good to the Muslims and the minorities. Their quarrel is on an issue which is totally different. Are the Hindus to be ruling race and the Muslims and other minorities to be subject races under Swaraj? That is the issue involved in the demand for coalition ministries. On that, the Muslims and other minorities have taken a definite stand. They are not prepared to accept the position of subject races. That the ruling community has done good to the ruled is quite beside the point and is no answer to the contention of the minority communities that they refuse to be treated as a subject people. The British have done many good things in India for the Indians. They have improved their roads, constructed canals on more scientific principles, effected their transport by rail, carried their letters by penny post, flashed their messages by lightning, improved their currency, regulated their weights and measures, corrected their notions of geography, astronomy and medicine, and stopped their internal quarrels and effected some advancement in their material conditions? Because of these acts of good government, did anybody ask the Indian people to remain grateful to the British and give up their agitation for self-government? Or because of these acts of social uplift, did the Indians give up their protest against being treated as a subject race by the British? The Indians did nothing of the kind. refused to be satisfied with these good deeds and continued to agitate for their right to rule themselves. This is as it should be. For as was said by Curran, the Irish patriot, no man can be grateful at the cost of his self-respect, no woman can be grateful at the cost of her chastity, and no nation can be grateful at the cost of its honour. It is no use saying that the Congress is not a Hindu body. A body which is Hindu in its composition is bound to reflect the Hindu mind and support Hindu aspirations. The only difference between the Congress and the Hindu Mahasabha is that the latter is crude in its utterances and brutal in its actions, while the Congress is political and polite. Apart from this difference of the fact, there is no other difference between the Congress and the Hindu Mahasabha. Similarly, it is no use saying that the Congress does not recognize the distinction between the ruler and the ruled. If this is so, the Congress must prove its bona fides by showing its readiness to recognize the other communities as free and equal partners. What is the test of such recognition? It seems to me that there can be only one, namely agreeing to share power with the effective representatives of the minority communities. Is the Congress prepared for it? Everyone knows the answer. The Congress is not prepared to share power with a member of a community who does not owe allegiance to the Congress. Allegiance to the Congress is a condition precedent to sharing power. It seems to be a rule with the Congress that if allegiance to the Congress is not forthcoming from a community, that community must be excluded from political power. Exclusion from political power is the essence of the distinction between a ruling race and a subject race. And inasmuch as the Congress maintained this principle, it must be said that this distinction was enforced by the Congress while it was in the saddle. The Muslims may well complain that they have already suffered enough and this, that this reduction to the position of a subject race is like a proverbial last straw. The decline and fall in India began ever since the British occupation of the country. Every change executive, administrative or legal introduced by the British has inflicted a series of blows upon the Muslim community. The Muslim rulers of India had allowed the Hindus to retain their law in civil matters, but they abrogated the Hindu criminal law and made the Muslim criminal law the law of the state, applicable to all Hindus as well as Muslims. The first thing the British did was to displace gradually the Muslim criminal law by another of their making, until the process was finally completed by the enactment of Maculay's Penal Code. This was the first blow to the prestige and position of the Muslim community in India. This was followed by the abridgment of the field of application of the Shariat or the Muslim civil law. Its application was restricted to matters concerning personal relations such as marriage and inheritance and then only to the extent permitted by the British. Side by side came the abolition, in 1837 of Persian as the official language of the court and of general administration and the substitution of English and the vernaculars in place of Persian. Then came the abolition of the Qazis, who, according uh, during the Muslim rule, administered the Shariat. In their places were appointed law officers and judges, who might be of any religion, but who got the right of interpreting Muslim law and whose decisions became binding on Muslims. These were severe blows to the Muslims. As a result, the Muslims found their prestige gone, their laws replaced, their language shelled, and their education shorn of its monetary value. Along with these came more palpable blows in the shape of annexation of Sindh and Oudh and the mutiny. The last particularly affected the higher classes of Muslims who suffered enormously by the extensive confiscation of property inflicted upon them by the British as a punishment for their suspected complicity in the mutiny. The result was that the Muslims were completely worsted in the struggle. The British conquest of India brought about a complete political revolution in the relative position of the two communities. For 600 years, the Muslims had been the masters of the Hindus. The British occupation brought them down to the level of the Hindus. From masters to fellow subjects was degradation enough, but a change from the status of fellow subjects to that of subjects of the Hindus is really humiliation. Is it unnatural? Asked the Muslims. If they seek an escape from so intolerable a position by the creation of a separate national states in which the Muslims can find a peaceful home and in which the conflicts between a ruling class and a subject race can find no place to plague their lives. Before the Hindus complain of the destruction of the unity of India, let them make certain that the unity they are harping upon does exist. What unity is there between Pakistan and Hindustan? Those Hindus who maintain the affirmative rely chiefly upon the fact that the areas which the Muslims want to be separated from India have always been a part of India. Historically, this is no doubt true. This area was a part of India when Chandragupta was the ruler. It continued to be a part of India when Huan Sang, the Chinese pilgrim, visited India in the 7th century. The most important thing that has happened is the invasion of India by the Muslim hordes from the Northwest. The first Muslim invasion of India was by the Arabs who were led by Muhammad bin Qasim. It took place in 711 and resulted in the conquest of Sindh. This first Muslim invasion did not result in a permanent occupation of the country because of the Caliphate of Baghdad by whose order and command the invasion had taken place was obliged by the middle of the 9th century to withdraw its direct control from this distant province of Sindh. Soon after this withdrawal, there began a series of terrible invasions by Muhammad of Ghazni in 1001, Muhammad died in 1030, but within the short span of 30 years, he invaded India 17 times. He was followed by Muhammad Ghori, who began his career as an invader in 1173. He was killed in 1206. For 30 years, Muhammad of Ghazni had ravaged India and for 30 years, Muhammad Ghori harried the same country in the same way. Then followed the incursions of the Mughal hordes of Genghis Khan. They first came in 1221. They only wintered on the border of India but did not enter it. 20 years after, they marched on Lahore and sacked it. Of their inroads, the last more terrible was under Timur in 1398. Then comes on the scene a new invader in the person of Babur who invaded India in 1526. The invasions of India did not stop with that of Babur. There occurred two more invasions. In 1738, Nadir Shah's invading host swept over the Punjab like a flooded river, furious as the ocean. He was followed by Ahmad Shah Abdali who invaded India in 1761, smashed the forces of the Marathas at Panipat and crushed forever the attempt of the Hindus to gain ground which they had lost to their Muslim invaders. The methods adopted by the invaders have left behind them their aftermath. One aftermath is the bitterness between the Hindus and the Muslims which they have caused. This bitterness between the two is so deeply seated that a century of political life has neither succeeded in assuaging it nor in making people forget it. As the invasions were accompanied with destruction of temples and forced conversions, with spoliation of property, with slaughter, enslavement, abasement of men, women and children. What wonder if the memory of these invasions has ever remained green as a source of pride to the Muslims and as a source of shame to the Hindus. But these things apart, this northwest corner of India has been a theatre in which a stern drama has been played. Muslim hordes in wave after wave have surged down into this area and from thence scattered themselves in spray over the rest of India. These reached the rest of India in thin currents. In time, they also receded from their farthest limits. While they lasted, they left a deep deposit of Islamic culture over the original Aryan culture in this northwest corner of India, which has given it a totally different color, both in religious and political outlook. The Muslim invaders, no doubt, came to India singing a hymn of hate against the Hindus. But they did not merely sing their hymn of hate and go back burning a few temples on the way. That would have been a blessing. They were not content with so negative a result. They did a positive act, namely to plant the seed of Islam. The growth of this plant is remarkable. It is not a summer sapling. It is as great and as strong as an oak. Its growth is the thickest in northern India. The successive invasions have deposited their silt more there than anywhere else and have served as watering exercise of devoted gardeners. Its growth is so thick in Northern India that the remnants of Hindu and Buddhist culture are just shrubs. Even the Sikh hacks could not fell this oak. Sikhs no doubt became the political masters of Northern India but they did not gain back from northern India to that spiritual and cultural unity by which it was bound to the rest of India before one sank. The Sikhs coupled it back to India. Still, it remains politically detachable and spiritually alien so far as the rest of India is concerned. It is only an unimaginative person who could fail to take notice of these facts or Insist in the face of them that Pakistan means breaking up into two, what is one the whole. What is the unity the Hindu sees between Pakistan and Hindustan? If it is geographical unity, then that is no unity. Geographical unity is unity intended by nature. In building up nationality on geographical unity, it must be remembered that it is a case where nature proposes and man disposes. If it is unity in external things, such as ways and habits of life, that is no unity. Such unity is the result of exposure to a common environment. If it is administrative unity, that again is no unity. That instant of Burma is in point. Arkan was annexed in 1826. Upper Burma was annexed in 1886. The administrative unity between India and Burma was forged in 1826. For over 110 years, that administrative unity continued to exist. In 1937, the knot that tied the two together was cut as under and nobody shed a tear over it. The unity between India and Burma was not less fundamental. If unity is to be of an abiding character, it must be founded on a sense of kinship, in the feeling of being kindred. In short, it must be spiritual. Judged in the light of these considerations, the unity between Pakistan and Hindustan is a myth. Indeed, there is more spiritual unity between Hindustan and Burma than there is between Pakistan and Hindustan. And if the Hindus did not object to the severance of Burma from India, it is difficult to understand how the Hindus can object to the severance of an area like Pakistan, which to repeat, is politically detachable from socially hostile and spiritually alien to the rest of India. Does Pakistan solve the communal question is a natural question which every Hindu is sure to ask. A correct answer to this question calls for close analysis of what is involved in it. One must have a clear idea as to what is exactly meant when the Hindus and Muslims speak of the communal question. Without it, it will not be possible to say whether Pakistan does or does not solve the communal question. It is not generally known that the communal question like the forward policy for the frontier has a greater and a lesser intent. And that in its lesser intent it means one thing. That in its greater intent it means quite a different thing. To begin with the communal question in its lesser intent... In its lesser intent, the communal question relates to the representation of the Hindus and the Muslims in the legislatures. Used in this sense, the question involves settlement of two problems. The number of seats to be allotted to the Hindus and Muslims in the different legislatures and the nature of the electorates through which these seats are to be filled in. How far does Pakistan approximate to the solution of the communal question? The answer to this question is quite obvious. If the scheme of Pakistan is to follow the present boundaries of the provinces in the northwest and in Bengal, certainly it does not eradicate the evils which lie at the heart of the communal question. It retains the very elements which give rise to it, namely the pitting of a minority against a majority. The rule of the Hindu minorities by the Muslim majorities and the rule of the Muslim minorities by the Hindu majorities are the crying evils of the present situation. And this very evil will reproduce itself in Pakistan.